0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: So a couple of quick things. First of all, it's a real honor to be here. I was on this stage last week with former Secretary of State Condi Rice at the Walker Nullop Conference, and um, I think my parents probably expected someday, if if our company got big enough, that we'd have that kind of a person on this stage. Uh, We sponsored a concert here in Sun Valley last summer, and I think they sort of expected that if my company got big enough, we'd sponsor a concert here in Sun Valley at some point. Uh, I guarantee you my parents never thought I would be speaking at the Writers' Conference. (laughs) Um, The um, other thing is that John asked me whether I wanted to go on Q&A after this discussion with Ezra, and I said I want to use the entire hour I got so much to talk to this gentleman about uh, and the other reason I said that is because when you go to Q&A after you have someone as great as Ezra the questions can be great they can be okay but everyone kind of like claps their hands at the end and you kind of filter off if we get out of him what I expect to get out of him I expect to hear from all of you at the end a ruckus applause um, so Ezra I put up your book why we're polarized is the first thing I wanted to talk about um, a couple years ago Um, after you published that, um, you did an interview with Malcolm Gladwell. And in the book, you talk about identity politics. And Malcolm Gladwell asked you to identify yourself. And after dodging his question for a good 10 to 15 minutes, he finally came back and said, Ezra, tell me how you identify. And you said, well, first I'm a dad and I'm a spouse. Um, And then you said, "Um, I'm a journalist. And then you said, I'm Jewish. I'm the son of immigrants. I'm vegan uh, and I think the final one was I'm fair, but in that entire description, you never said whip smart. How come you didn't put or don't self-identify as being highly intelligent?
0: It's a question. <laughs> um, I just don't, I, I don't know what it would mean to walk around the world saying to myself, mm, looking at this as a smart person, uh, I think a point I make in the book and I made to Malcolm in that interview is that identities activate also under threat. I live a life where a lot of people wander up to me like, oh, you're so smart. Many of you have come to say something like that. So that identity is not much under threat. On the flip side, I just moved from California to New York. So I like when you said, how do you identify the first thought that popped in my head right now is as a Californian, because that identity is under threat. It's under challenge. It's something important to me, but there's pressure on it. Uh, One of the central arguments of why we're polarized is that you should never think of identity and you should never think of identity politics as operating off of any singular sense of self. We are never one identity. We have manifold overlapping identities, some of them fused together. Um, A point of the book, you have these sort of mega identities, right? People are liberal and they're atheist and they, you know, live in, you know, San Francisco and they're, um, so a lot of things connect and a lot of things don't connect, What matters in politics, what matters in life, is who we feel ourselves to be at a certain moment. At this festival, the feeling, the identity of being a writer has been much more foremost in my mind and to some degree my soul than it normally is. I'm here among other writers. The not just theme, but whole culture of this place is honoring writing. It's made me think a lot about myself as a writer. I think that's important. You want to try to recognize that you're never one thing and you want to hold those things lightly and let them flow and let them flux. Uh, But also I think you don't want to adopt any identities that are going to make your head too big. So you don't want to walk around saying yourself, (laughs) but you as a kid from your wife, Annie, whose educational career
1: is so boring. She went to Andover and Harvard. I mean, come on. Um, You went to Santa Clara before going Santa Cruz before going to UCLA. Um, What was it that turned you on? In other words, at some point, Ezra's mind went from good to great. What was it that got you to say, I wanna learn more, I wanna read more, I wanna
0: know more than anyone else? I don't, I wouldn't say I think of it as as competitive as that, but what I will say is that kind of behind that story is I was a terrible student. Um, the main thing, the identity that was dominant for me in high school, because it was one that most constantly reinforced, is underachiever. right? Clearly a smart kid, an obsessive reader. Um, I wanted to know a lot about the world then, too. But I was in a context that just didn't work for me. I have a lot of trouble absorbing information, just listening to somebody speak. Um, I think now, in this age, I would have been diagnosed with a kind of learning disability. I wouldn't call it a disability. It's a, kind of maybe a learning difference is another way to talk about it. I focus very well by reading. But even now, as a reporter, I mostly can't call into teleconference calls because none of the information will hold for me. So I struggled terribly in school. Um, I graduated high school with a 2.2 2 GPA. I got into UC Santa Cruz, God bless it, uh, entirely on testing. Um, at that time, uh, Santa Cruz and Riverside would take anybody with above a 1,400 SAT score or above a 3.3 GPA. And so I was able to get in there. And even college didn't work that well for me. I love Santa Cruz. I had a good experience at UCLA, but it was blogging. In 2003, when I was a freshman at UC Santa Cruz, I got rejected from an internship on the student newspaper, uh, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> Big mistake on their part. Maybe not. Uh, now it has become like a beloved part of my biography. But I mean, I thought I, I was a bad student. I had not been on my high school newspaper. They had no reason to think anything different. But I was bored and I hadn't found my people. And I really wouldn't find my people at, at Santa Cruz. And this thing was happening on the Internet where I was plugged in, which was blogging, where you could start up a thing at blogspot.com. Uh, my, for, I don't, I had a couple of early blogs, but the one I remember in this period is called live it left. <laughs> um, after something my high school teacher used to say to me, um, and there I got to just follow my own interests and not just follow them, but write about them. And it was the connection for me of being able to follow down, to follow the pathway of my own enthusiasm And then process that enthusiasm, that learning, that research through writing, and then iterate on that in the next piece and through conversation with other people. That was what caught for me. That was what took my kind of interest from like, I like to hang out at bookstores, which I did, to I kind of can't stop doing this. And so college was very much a sideline for me for blogging. And I got an internship at a magazine, uh, the uh, the Washington Monthly, then a fellowship at the American Prospect. And I left college at the end of my junior year. And I'm like 65% sure I'm a college graduate, but definitely not 100% sure I'm a college graduate and went to Washington to work as a, as a fellow. But for me, it's really like blogging and then journalism. It clicked and this is, in some ways, a very deep part of my views on life and, and on even politics, and it goes a little bit to what I was saying earlier about identity, I believe people are shaped by their context. I have been in contexts where I was the same person in many ways that I am now, and I was an unrelenting failure. I couldn't seem to get anything right. Like All anybody had to say about me was like, poor kid, what shame you can't seem to get it together. And then nothing changed except my context. And all of a sudden, like, here we are. And so the question of are people able to search out the context in which they are adaptive, the context in which their unique combination of traits clicks, I think is a much bigger part of life than we give it credit for.
1: So one quick side note, you just mentioned that the Washington Monthly was the first publication you worked for. That was the first publication that David Ignatius of the Washington Post worked for. It's also the first publication that my mother, Diana Walker, who was a photographer for Time Magazine, worked for. Just kind of interesting. The great legacy there. Three of you have that in common. Um, So let's flip through to high weirdness. Um, Because I listened to your podcast. And by the way, I've got at the end of every one of Ezra's podcasts, he asks his guest three books or a podcast that you would recommend to the audience. And so I went and I'm trying to follow along that, but I got your book and four others, two books and two podcasts. So on high weirdness, this conversation, and I would highly recommend any of you to listen to this podcast that Ezra put together. Um, In it, you and Eric talk about weird and the fact that weird things are essentially things that just challenge our understanding of the world we know today. And so my question to you, Ezra, is we all are talking extensively about
0: AI. Why isn't AI just weird? I think AI is weird. I mean, this is the whole point. So Eric Davis deserves some introduction here. Eric Davis is the great living historian of California counterculture. He is himself unbelievably weird, just a very weird person. And he doesn't it, sound weird at all. I know that's his, that's his trick. But um, it's how the whole thing works. If you're going to be doing the work he's doing, you have to be able to pass with the normies. (laughs) Um, You guys should have him at this conference some year. But so he wrote this book. This book, High Weirdness, is a profile of mystical, psychedelic experiences had by three important figures in the California counterculture, including Philip K. Dick, um, Terrence, Terrence McKenna, and I'm blanking out on the third one. I'd read this a couple years ago, and I found this book was something that was helping me do two things. One was interpret a dimension of California and particularly the Bay Area culture that was very present for me. One thing that makes the Bay Area what it is, is a tolerance for things that other places would not tolerate for good and for bad. Right. I think the disorder you see on the streets there is actually intrinsically braided with the explosive creativity of Silicon Valley. The thing that will happen to you in San Francisco is somebody will come in and sit down with you and proceed to tell you the weirdest thing you have ever heard with a completely straight face. And people there listen. Investors listen. So for years, I've been reporting and spending time with people in the AI community. And I would always... Talk to my uh, partner afterwards and say, when I left these conversations with, like, for instance, this guy who not many people knew back then, Sam Altman, um, I would say, I cannot tell if he's crazy or if I am. Like, every time I leave, like, am I, like, have I lost my mind or has this person? Because they were describing a world that was on the cusp of completely irrevocable, unpredictable transformational change, a world in which these people were racing towards the creation of a kind of self-directed super-intelligence that they understood and believed they could not control and in the long run could not predict. They could bring to life unimaginable utopias of material abundance and unimaginable dystopias of human extinction. And meanwhile, it's 2020. And when I go online, what AI is doing is saying, so I see you bought a bike. Would you perchance like to buy another bike at every website I go to on the Internet? And so something was very strange in this. But I I had a lot of access to these programs like ChatGPT, you know, or was it called ChatGPT then? GPT-3, GPT-2, quite quite a while ago. And you can watch them getting better. And you could watch them at this accelerating rate doing things every six months you didn't think they could do. And then, of course, the world comes to see this with chat GPT, and, and this kind of all explodes out into the, into the, into the world. The reason I find Eric Davis' work important here is that he's a theorist of the weird. And I think a mistake many people are making when they think about artificial intelligence is to understand it upon our own terms. They want to extrapolate one of two stories we already have. A story of material plenty right? This is going to be great. Productivity is going to go up. GDP is going to go up. Wages may not go up, but maybe universal basic income will come into being, or it'll be a kind of everything that is bad will get worse, right? We'll use it to kill each other, or it will just kill us. And what I think is likely is that it's going to be very weird. And in particular, one way that weirdness is a helpful framework for it is that it it makes the world illegible. So to the point of like defying conventional expectations, When AI is really working, it's going to be making a lot of decisions and we will not be able to track those decisions effectively. And so the world ceases to become something we can predict and something we can fit into our normal frameworks. So as you talk about normal frameworks, one of the places that you and Eric go in that conversation,
1: Ezra, is sort of the world order and the way that we justify being at the top of the pyramid. That we, and, and in it, you and Eric talk about the fact that, you know, Eric was talking about building a house, and in the process of building a house, killing thousands of mosquitoes and bugs and things of that nature. That we kill animals to eat on a daily basis, and that we all sit there at the top of the pecking order and somehow say we're satiate, we're, 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 we're the highest as far as intellect, and therefore we have the right to treat all other creatures on earth the way we do. Yeah. And that all of a sudden there's something that might actually come on top of us that somehow reworks that world order and that freaks the shit out of us.
0: Well, let me turn this question to you because I think it's a really interesting one. How do you value other people? Like, or how do you think our society values people? Right. What do you think? Not what we say, but what do we really do? If you were an alien and you came down, you're an an ethnographer from the Nebula universe. What would you find about how human beings value each other and other creatures?
1: In clearly in the United States, very materialistic. What do you have? Not who you are. Clearly other cultures put more of who you are than what you have. Um, but yeah, that's the way I'd look at it from a U.S. perspective versus some other cultures in the world.
0: I think that's right. And I think that's one reason we're particularly afraid of AI here. How do you get things in our current economy? Your are whip smart is one of them. You're a tireless worker, right? AIs never sleep, right? They can be tireless in a way we can never be. You can come up with new ideas. You know, you can range. You can be a generalist. We value people in very instrumental ways. So if you build a system that is a better instrument than the people, well, then on what grounds do we value them? And then if you look at how we've treated many animals... I mean, we instrumentalize them even more. Think of how we treat cows and chickens in factory farming. So, I think one thing that's very scary about AI is that in a world where we treat each other and everything else so instrumentally, what happens when we create a better instrument? And if it's trained on us, or even just we're the ones deploying it, then what's to say it doesn't instrumentalize us? And another thing you said in that interview, which I thought was fascinating was
1: talking about, if you will, voice and cognition. He talked about the fact that as humans, when we hear something talking to us that actually contextualizes what it is saying, it sort of freaks us out. Talk about that because I I hadn't thought about that of the sense that when you hear audible, not read, but you hear audibly something that actually puts context to it, it, we've never had that before. You mean what happens when AI moves to voice? When AI moves to voice and the whole reason that why when AI comes to us, giving us a response on Siri, that it all of a sudden we
0: say it has agency. So have people here seen the Spike Jonze movie Her? Has anybody watched that? If you haven't, I think it is like the single best piece of culture, single best way to think about AI. Because it's a movie about basically what happens when we have AI companions. What happens when we can create a system that can be your best friend, your lover, partner, your business partner? And one of the strange things about AI right now is we are creating a very inhuman, very alien, I don't know what you want to call it. I think the best thing to call it is an intelligence. Some people disagree with me on that. But a kind of intelligence, a problem-solving creature, a problem-solving system And then we are teaching it to act human. It doesn't naturally act human. So we are putting this like thin human face, this thin human skin on the most bizarre internal system you could possibly imagine. So we are essentially trying to trick ourselves into believing in the humanity, believing in the personality of this model. We're tuning it to do that. We are creating something to trick us, right? Nobody really cared that much about GPT-3 until they gave it a chatbot interface and made it good at talking up people in English. And then ultimately, of course, in other languages. That's just very telling, right? AI is not human. It does not think like a human being, but we are teaching this very powerful system to seem like a human to us because that's how we like to relate to it. One of the next things that will happen is voice. That's even harder to not feel like you're talking to a human being. I mean, okay, the fact that computers generating text, but voice with like competitive overlapping in its speech, and you can make it sound like anything, and it has pauses and stammers and whatever. Very, it's going to be very weird.
1: It's going to be very weird. Um, How a lot of people are very fearful of AI sort of taking over the world. Um, and in that discussion with Eric, you talked about the fact that. You know, it was in 2015 that Elon Musk said in two years, we'll have fully autonomous cars by 2017. Here we are in 2023, and we do not have fully autonomous cars. And McKinsey estimates that $165 billion has been spent on autonomous vehicles so far up until now, and we still don't have them. Um, How... How sort of how much distance is there between the lip and the cup, as they say in golf, as it relates to AI really starting to do things for us that are beyond just a book report that one of our kids is going to auto-generate from technology versus something that we really need to be fearful of?
0: I think there's actually going to be a pretty big last-mile pro- problem in a lot of AI systems, which has been the problem for driverless cars. So a driverless car can't be 85%. reliable, it's got to be 99.99999% reliable. And that turns out to be really hard because there's a lot a driverless car cannot predict about the real world, right? There's a lot that shows up very rarely in the data. One reason I think AI is going to be economically useful and economically dominant more slowly, if ever, than a lot of other people think is that I think that last mile problem is going to show up in a lot of places. You can't really have an AI journalist, because the systems hallucinate. And the better they get at being convincing, the harder they are to fact check. Right? The system is actually kind of stupid. It's easy to see where it's going wrong. If it's really smart, it's not. Where I think this could happen very quickly, though, and it could roll out, is things like companionship, where it's okay for it to hallucinate, okay to make things up. Right? The point of your friend or your partner isn't that they're always telling you the truth. It's that they're caring, they're interesting, they're funny. So I think the productivity boost of AI is going to be slower than other people do, because a lot of things that are most important for productivity are going to have a big last mile problem, um, whereas the social hit of AI is going to come very quick. I have a joke about this, that right now there's a lot of worry in the media that like 12-year-olds don't see enough of their friends in person. I think at 10 years, there's going to be a lot of worry in the media that not enough of a 12-year-old's friends are persons. That's again why I think her is a really good movie to watch because it's focused on the social dynamic of AI. But at least when we're talking about the large language models, I think a really important question to ask is where does hallucination not matter? Where it matters, and that's true in kind of, you know, medicine and journalism and politics and business strategy, where getting things wrong is important, consequential. That's going to be pretty hard. Where it's not, video games, entertainment of all different kinds, I think you could see AI come into play really quickly. It's why I think that, say, the Hollywood screenwriters are more wor- are more right to be worried about their jobs than, say, you know, analysts at a investment bank, because even if superficially an AI could write a pretty good investment report even right now, knowing what it's made up and what it has not is going to be really hard. And so in the end, it's not and the cost of getting that wrong is going to be really high. So in the end, not that many players are going to want to risk that. So you talked
1: about video games in in this interview that you had with the head of deep which is Google's whole AI unit. Um, it's, a again, highly recommend it to anyone in the audience who hasn't listened to it. The two of you dive into a discussion on alpha go alpha and alpha And I think it would be really helpful for you to just quickly describe those evolutions of AI only because, at least before I listened to that podcast, my thought of ChatGBT and what AI is going to do was pretty constrained to, oh, great, my analysts at Walker Delop are going to be able to do an underwriting file much quicker, exactly yeah. as you just talked about. And all of a sudden, as you and Demis dove into AlphaFold, it opens up this entire space of scientific research. And it is so incredibly exciting as it relates to what it will do and how beneficial to not just DeepMind, but to the entire medical research and drug development world that development has been as far as the protein research.
0: So to me, this is is the path that I think is most interesting for AI and that I'm worried it's not going to take, precisely because we so like it when AI acts human. That we're now valuing and putting all of our investment and so much energy in these large language models that are good at acting human. What I like are inhuman AIs, AIs that do things human beings can't do. So Demis Hassabis is is a really interesting guy. So he founds DeepMind, which gets bought by Google. He's now in charge of all AI across all of Google and all of DeepMind, and it's now called Google DeepMind. But his background is as a game designer. And what he basically, as somebody who, he says to me that he always wanted to work on AI and started in games as a way of, like, cracking into that very early on. And what he basically realizes is that a lot of things can be structured as a game. If you can give the AI rules that it can learn, then it can begin to master things. But this was a very unproven hypothesis. So DeepMind's first big breakthrough is an AI system that can play the game Pong. Have people here played Pong? Okay. But... There are two kinds of AI. This, now we don't think about this that much, but back then there's like a lot of AI is what's called symbolic AI. You're hard coding in rules to the AI, right? When it goes up, great. You know, like when the other person does this, you do that. The problem is the world is too complicated to be well represented by a billion rules. We just cannot come up with enough rules to code into a system to make a symbolic system really intelligent. So he's basically codes in AI with other people that all it knows is that it wants to get to the outcome where it begins to get points in Pong. But it doesn't know anything about Pong. And it's basically blindly trying things, learning Pong almost pixel by pixel, right? Not understanding it as a game, understanding it as code, right? Like Neo looking at the numbers at the end of the matrix. And it takes six months for this system to score one point in Pong. Then, very shortly after that, it becomes completely unbeatable. And then DeepMind begins building uh, alpha uh, systems, which is what they call them, for different games. The one they're very famous for is Go. So, Go, which is a much more complicated game in terms of the moves that are available than chess, is thought to be, you know, if an AI could beat the best human players in Go, that would really be something. So, they build Alpha Go. Um, alpha Go uh, learns from human. Programs, but also teaches itself the game, ends up beating one of the uh, Go world champions, a guy named Lee Sedol. Then they create though, and this is to be really interesting, Alpha Zero. And Alpha Zero never plays with human beings; it only plays itself. It's never given the data of human players. It only teaches itself. Within a week, it destroys Alpha Go. So actually, taking all the human information out of the system made it stronger. But The place where all this was going for them is, well, what else is kind of like a game in that way? Actually, a lot of scientific problems are, they have rules, they have points. One of the very hard problems in science for many years has been called the protein folding problem. They're about, that we know of 200 million proteins. A huge part of the way they work is how they're folded up, their 3D structure. We can find their amino acid sequences pretty easily, but we couldn't predict how they would fold from that. Using the 150,000 amino acid sequences we have, they build a system that can, that is able to successfully predict 200 million folding proteins. The system can't talk to you, it can't give you romantic advice, but it can do something no human being can do, which is solve the protein folding problem. Science, The journal Science names it, or Nature, I forget which one, names it their Scientific Breakthrough of the Year, I think it's in 2021. And so here you have this other way of thinking about AI, which is what can you structure with a kind of minimum of rules, but a maximum of data such that an AI could work and work and work and work until it finds the patterns that human beings can never find and is able to build those patterns into a generalizable model and then solve the problem completely or make good predictions for the problem. And that's fold. And now Google is trying to make that into a drug discovery business. Because if you can figure out every protein, well then maybe you could build drugs that bind more completely to proteins that don't bind to the wrong proteins. So they're spitting out this company called Isomorphic, which is supposed to do drug discovery. I am personally much more excited about AI for drug discovery um, and other things like that. They're building one to try to help with nuclear fusion. One of the hard problems of nuclear fusion is how do you stable the super hot plasma at the center of these reactions? Human uh, humans can't create the algorithms and move fast enough to do that. AI maybe can. Whether this is the direction AI goes or not, I mean, we'll see. But I think what's interesting about that is that the problem with language is that it actually doesn't really have rules. It has grammar, but there isn't really such a thing as like the right language. When you ask me this question, there were many right answers, or at least answers that would be legible to all of you in the audience. You did it just about perfectly, by the way. Thank you. I mean, there is a, the, the the perfect answer, which I found. But, <laughs> um, but that's why the systems hallucinate, right? Because they're trying to figure out what is the likeliest answer to the question. But there is no one likely answer to the question. Many things are possible. But if you can find things where there is a right answer and where you can falsify the answers by finding out if you don't have them right, which is a very complicated question with all this stuff. Um, then you can do things that are really incredible. And like when you think about how AI could make our lives better in 30 years, I think a lot more of it comes from that kind of program than from the large language models. So the hallucination comment
1: I think is a really interesting one for a moment to just double click on, because I listened to uh, Sam Harris, uh, Mark Andreessen uh, podcast, and um, I would, I thought I was going to recommend it to you all, but. Sam is so quick to kind of knock down anything that Andreessen says that I sort of, I loved what Andreessen said. I wasn't so excited about what Sam said, but during it, Andreessen said, you know, we used to always rely on computers to be a hundred percent, right. Isn't it cool that they're now thinking on their own and they might come back to us with an incorrect answer. And it's interesting because all of us, I mean, I, I put something into my iPhone. I'm like, that better be right when it comes back. So when it comes back on a, I asked actually Claude, the oh. chat bot, um, I asked Claude to do your resume and my resume. It got you perfectly. It said that I went to Stanford, that I was on the board of the of the Richmond Fed, uh, and it said I was born circa 1960. I was born closer circa 1970 to the 1960. Thank you very much, Claude. Um, but the, the point being is I kind of laughed at it that didn't get my bio right. But that's just because it's out there trying to grab all this stuff. Nobody sat there and done a Wikipedia file on Willie Walker that you were reading off of. It was actually, to it was out there trying to find the, the answer. But there's one other piece to this not only hallucination, but the inbreeding that you raised in your conversation with the Mies um, as it relates to that database of 150,000 known proteins. And then when they started to run it, 150,000 is too small a database. They need, like on go, they were playing the game millions and millions and millions of times, and that's how it got better and better and better. And it was also structured AI, as you said, where it was going at a specific task versus much more broad-based. But talk for a moment, if you would, Ezra, about the inbreeding, because They had to go and take 600,000 as you talk about there and cut it down to 350 and then put the 350 with the 150 to get to the half a million to actually know that the 200 million were going to work. Talk for a moment about that because this is this whole realm of the unknown that I think scares us so much. Because if you set AI to something that we don't actually know the answer to,
0: how do we know the answer is correct? So the inbreeding problem. So the inbreeding problem is basically the problem of garbage in, garbage out. The... There are a couple um, uh, constraints on AI. Thank you. Right, on any AI system. And two of the main ones are training data. Do you have enough good data to train the AI on? If you don't, it's not going to be able to find the relationships it needs to find. And the other is compute power, which is not that relevant for what we're talking about here. But you need a lot of compute power, which is why only a couple of companies right now can build the really big AIs. Um, Training data is really hard. Because well, in some areas of life there's a lot of it, right? A lot of the a lot of the AIs right now are heavily trained on Reddit. That's why they're so good at talking like people, because people talk like people on Reddit. But I don't know if you'll read Reddit. I read Reddit. I am skeptical that you could become super intelligent by reading Reddit. <laughs> like reasonably intelligent, sure. Super intelligent? by reading our relationship advice? I don't know. Um, So where is there enough data? So one thing then that you might think of doing was like, well, okay, the AI can create all this data based on what it's read, create the data, feed it back into the AI. When you do that, you get called, you get the inbreeding problem or what gets called, I call it inbreeding actually, um, but it's called model collapse uh, because a model begins basically burrowing its mistakes deeper and deeper and deeper into its pattern recognition. What they did with AlphaFold, and it's really important to note, this might not have worked, right? I mean, it did work. So now it's like, hey, hey, huzzah, but like, this could have been a disaster, is they basically began creating predictions and feeding them back into the model. But they did something interesting here, which is that they began creating, basically the model feeds out two things. One is the predicted structure of a protein and one is the certainty level about the predicted structure of a protein. And so they had a certain amount of the data where they were pretty sure, because this is frankly a little bit beyond my level of technical expertise on on protein folding, but they knew proteins close enough to it that they could be pretty sure that they were getting the right answer here. Then they had things where they weren't sure. And so you're creating data where they basically had a cut of what they were producing, they were certain enough, was close enough, that the model could use it as more data. And Dennis has said to me, and he said to other people too, he thinks we basically had the lower bound, or I'm sorry, the upper bound, uh, some bound. He thinks that 150,000 proteins was the minimum possible amount of data to get protein folding right and you that if we'd had 70,000 it wouldn't have worked. And and you went to just on the other side of that you in that conversation went to
1: predictive capability on markets. And you kept probing of like aren't there hedge funds out there using AI to be able to if you will corner a market, figure yeah. out where market's going. And his response to you was essentially it's it's too vast a data set there are too many variables for ai to accurately predict that jerome powell is going to wake up on wednesday and raise by 25 basis points at the same time as oil supply is going to go to x i don't really believe him you kept pushing on and he kept coming back to you saying it's too much
0: if you look in the bylaws of OpenAI, they have a weird um clause where they say their investors can only have a hundred X return, And you might think why cap the amount of money that your investors can make, right? Why like tell investors from the beginning, we're going to cap your return. And it's because the people who run open AI think that when you create, not what we have now, but a genuine artificial general intelligence, it will basically be able to make all the money in the world. Now they're right. Probably not, but it could make a ton of money. Yeah. And I don't really buy that you can solve the protein folding problem that somebody cannot create an algorithm in markets that becomes a very dominant hedge fund. I think I don't want to speak for Demis, but I'm not convinced by his answer there. And so before we move off of
1: AI as it relates to you being in the camp that AI is going to be this great tool for humanity and is going to advance us. And so many people say, you know, every technological innovation that we've come across that we thought was going to eliminate jobs has only grown the economy and made us better and faster and all that stuff. That's one camp. The other camp is um, Alpha Mork, the people who left ChatGBT to go start Alpha Mork, which is a socially conscious AI company. Huh. And you go, the, one of your colleagues at the New York Times went and visited with Alpha Mork week before last. Astrophic? Yeah. And I, and, uh, excuse me. Yeah. And who spent the, spent the uh, uh, week there and just basically said got scared to death because most people walk around there saying, we're all dead in 10 years. Which end of that
0: are you on? It's a weird culture. I'll say that for all these people. I think what's weird about the OpenAI to Anthropic thing is OpenAI was supposed to be the socially conscious AI company. <laughs> then a bunch of its people are like, no, 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 we got to go in Anthropic. Now there are people in Anthropic who are like, we're moving too fast. Look, Oppenheimer is in theaters now. I wasn't there covering the development of the atomic bomb, but it's hard to think of anything else where the people behind the system seem so afraid of what they were creating now they're afraid based on speculation they're afraid based on a view that the curve is not going to flatten that it's just going to keep getting smarter more capable which i think over enough time it will how fast that is i don't know and that we're creating something that could well replace us or could just do terrible damage to us that doesn't seem crazy to me and i think the hard thing is like what do you do when you can't rule it out And that's the question all these people are asking. And like Anthropic, you might ask, why are they creating a system at all? And it's because they need to raise all this money to create a system because they think unless you have the system, you can't do enough safety testing and research to figure out how to control the system. So the reason all these people who are terrified of what they're building are trying to build it is they think it's only by building it that we can figure out how to make it safe. But they're not confident that that strategy will work. So they might end up building the thing that destroys us anyway. And whether it will destroy... I mean, this is all... It's hard because it's all speculation stacked on speculation. On the other hand, I don't think you need to believe in too many speculative leaps to believe that if we create something that is more capable than human beings at most knowledge tasks, can functionally be infinitely replicated, never sleeps, that that's going to be a real transformational hit to humanity. Economically, psychically, everything. And so you know, we're going, we're going into truly uncharted territory. Um, but yeah, I, I find it worrying how worried the people behind these things are, but they're also all racing each other to build them. As, um, Evan Osler said in an interview day before yesterday, it,
1: it, it may be ironic. It may just be by chance, but Oppenheimer and Sam Altman of chat GBT show the same birthday. Um, Yeah. It's kind of a chilling thought, isn't it? Um, before we move off of AI, and AI is going to come into everything else. Jacob, I have a I have a clip here that I pulled out this morning. I saw it. I just I thought it was so appropriate to transition from AI into other things. Having asked you that question, so Jacob, will you run the clip that I asked you to to? I don't t- have much. To this is Joe Walsh of the of the Heels. It has nothing to do with music. It, it's uh, you know it can't uh, destroy a hotel room. It can't uh, throw a TV off the fifth floor into the pool and re- get right in the middle. When when it, when AI can knows how to destroy a hotel room, then I'll pay attention to. It. <laughs> I thought I thought that clip from Joe Walsh, you know, as it relates to you know, it it still can't play a song, you know. Yes. Um, it still can't create exactly. jump onto a, into a into a hotel pool. Um, let's move to the next one, which is recoding America. Um, this book you recommend and hope
0: that every politician and bureaucrat in America reads. Why? So it's a book. It's by Jen Polka. As you can see, it's great. I really recommend it to you all. Y'all should have her here next year. Um, she founded a group called Code for America, which basically tried to create digitally native and digitally capable government services, right? It's very, I mean, has anybody used a government website? And certainly if you use one five or 10 years ago, it was not a great experience. So she was trying to get great technologists to work with, in the public sector or with the public sector to make this all a lot better. Her book is such a stunning and such a specific account of why government programs run by people who want to make them work, like run by good dedicated civil servants, why they fail why they struggle, why they're too rigid, what it takes to try to move them. You know, a a big theme of my work over the past couple of years is what I call like a liberalism that builds. It's about the question of why it's become so hard in blue states, like California or New York. I mean, in many red states too, but I'm focusing here on liberals to build real things in the real world, housing, clean energy, you know, um, mass transit, semiconductor manufacturing facilities. And a lot of it just comes down to a rigidity and process a kind of crush of stakeholders, too many goals, not enough prioritization, but a lot of good intentions that are not, in the end, resolving down to good structures. And Jen's book, like, I genuinely believe it should be a signed reading, right? Jen's book is about how good people fail the people they're trying to help because they end up engaged in a fight with the systems in which they are operating but they don't have the power to change the system and what it takes to change the system is too hard for most people and so you either get like heroes or you get people willing to live within and even who adapt to and serve a bad system and so the people who lose out on that are the people who need government services so it's a it's a great fantastic book there, there are a couple themes in there
1: that i thought were really interesting as well. one is that no government contractor is hired for competence they're hired for compliance
0: yeah so i don't want to say no i don't think she would say no government contractor but to a first approximation this is a good example of how good intentions go bad so you have in the government all these procurement and contracting rules meant to ensure fair play meant to prevent cronyism meant to make sure that you know a diverse slate of subcontractors get to bid meant to do all these things that people support. Those rules end up being very, 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 very time-consuming and difficult to follow. So who ends up being good at contracting? Not the people who can do the job best. It's the people who understand the rule compliance system the best. The people who understand the bidding system the best. The people who've built huge networks of lawyers and you know, RFP writers and so on to get involved in all that. And often those are not the people with the best technology. So like that's one dimension of it. And then like another dimension of it is that we have this litigation system inside that procurement system. And so if you don't get the bid as a contractor, you can sue. And so then they have to like show that the whole process was fair. So you actually you'd think the contractors would be at the beck and call of the public servants. But the public servants, the, the bureaucrats, often have to please the contractors because they often don't want the process to get slowed down in a court fight. So it's a very good example. um, And she has a number of them very specifically of like why we don't end up with like the best contractors doing the best work. And by the way, I heard from, I mean, I think hundreds of contractors over email after this, and they were like, this is both true. And it is so frustrating for us because I also can't do my best work. I also am trapped in this system where I have to, you know, file all my forms in triplicate and fill out this and that. And it should not be this frustrating to work in government. And if it is this frustrating to work in government, then only people who are willing to be constantly frustrated are going to work in government. One of the things I said in that piece is that um, we are asking too much of the people who work in government that... It doesn't just we don't just need good people in these jobs. We need these jobs to be good for good people. And somebody's actually pretty high up in the administration wrote me and said like that that comment made her cry because to her and to so many around her, like the day-to day fight to try to do right by the people she is trying to serve is so difficult. And it feels so pointless, right? Everybody's incentives should be pointing in the same direction here. And I think this should be, if you're a liberal, and I am a liberal, like this should be taken as a very real problem. I think a lot of liberals, and I'm one of them, believe in government. But if you believe in government, you need to be attentive to the details of how it works. And if it's not working well, you should be the most upset. You should be the most furious. You should be the most intent on changing it. And so often, because a macro battle in Republican and Democratic politics is like Democrats as defenders of government... Republicans as critics of it or attackers of it, Democrats are very uncomfortable saying what's actually wrong. But if government doesn't work well, that much more so to me than any Republican critique is what ultimately weakens government, weakens public support for it, dissuades people from participating in government or signing up for things. My my wife, Annie, um, uh, has written these great pieces on the time tax, the way in which administrative complexity is, in some cases, Weaponized to keep people from attaining or accessing the benefits ranging from SNAP payments to simply voting that they're entitled to. But sometimes it's not weaponization. Sometimes it's simply drift. Sometimes it's that Democrats were so afraid of fraud that they made the income verification or wealth verification parts of the bill so onerous that somebody who's a single mom with four kids and two jobs simply can't go through it. And like this should be this should appall liberals it should obsess them and it doesn't and jen is somebody who's trying to change that yeah one
1: final thing on that in the book you and jen talk about that the sexy stuff is the politics the next sexiest is the policy and the third sexiest is the delivery or the implementation yeah. and i was talking last night with judy woodruff and Dee, Dee myers uh, about that specific, this specific issue. And both of them said, that's the reason that the White House has reporters out the door. And if you go to HUD or Treasury or state or anywhere else, there's no one covering what actually happens at the ground level. It ain't sexy. No one covers it. All they want to talk about is the politics, not the policy or the implementation.
0: Yeah. I mean, Washington is a city, I mean, as our many state capital is a work off of prestige and work off of money. And you don't, make, you don't attain prestige and you don't make money by working on implementation, at least not on the public side. You may make it on the private side, right? Contractors actually sometimes do make a lot of money, uh, but not on the public side. And that's a real, it's a genuine problem. Sean Donovan, who ran HUD, is around in this conference somewhere. And I mean, I'm sure he could give you chapter and verse on this. Uh, as somebody who's covered policy for many years, like I can tell you the amount of coverage we give to something when it is a fight over whether the policy will pass, right? The coverage on whether or not Obamacare will pass, whether the Inflation Reduction Act will pass. And then it does pass. Hallelujah. It's like, bye. <laughs> All the best. How's the Inflation Reduction Act going? I mean, I think if you're listening to my show, Robinson Meyer just had a great, um. We'll, we'll tell you. But in general, I think we the level of coverage of whether or not it will pass uh, of whether or not it is Im- implementing well is so much smaller than the day-to-day coverage of stuff. Joe Manchin said near the elevator that it's appalling. <laughs> all right. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more. Do I, can I, can I, I'm, I'm all up
1: against time, but this final one was a really, it's a fascinating conversation on an issue that is so topical and so important to our country. Um, you, you discussed with Jerusalem, the new Benioff Center uh, for Housing at the University of San Francisco. They're the deepest study ever done on homelessness in California. California has 12% of the country's population. It has 30% of the country's homeless population, and it has 50% of the country's unsheltered homeless population. And there were a number of things in that discussion, Ezra, that you two debunk. The biggest one I think that I'd like you to comment on is the fact that someone who is becoming homeless in Ohio, because California has a broader social safety net and has better weather, hops in his or her car and zooms across the country to California to become homeless.
0: Yeah, so that just doesn't really happen. Um So one of the things this report finds, it's the biggest report we've ever had on like the homeless population, um is ninety percent of people currently homeless in California the last address was in California. 75%, it was in the same county they're currently in. When you're homeless, you actually just don't have the wherewithal to go very far. Weirdly, the logic should go the other way, right? People think, oh, you're homeless you go to California. No, no, no. If you're homeless, you should leave California because the California housing crisis makes it very hard for you to get housed. And the fact that people don't really do that either shows you the problem. Like being homeless... There's a great line in that report that being homeless is a full-time job. It's very hard to, like, I mean, with nothing, pick up and move. Um, One of the key things in this is that homelessness is fundamentally a housing problem. Uh, There's a very good analogy in a book by that same name, Homelessness is a Housing Problem. To Think of it as musical chairs, right? If you have 12 people, but you have 14 chairs, and during the game, right, during the game of musical chairs, somebody breaks their leg, that person is still gonna find a chair. Now, if you have 11 chairs and somebody breaks their leg, well, that's the person who's not gonna get a chair. And that's a way to think about the relationship between like, individual risk factors like mental illness, joblessness, et cetera, and homelessness. That if you have enough chairs, you can have a lot of those problems and still get a home. West Virginia has a higher rate of mental illness in California, a higher rate of poverty, a much higher rate of drug addiction much lower rate of homelessness because West Virginia has very cheap housing and very abundant housing. California and San Francisco in particular, it is rich, has a low rate of mental illness in general, very high rate of homelessness because housing is unfathomably expensive. And so fundamentally, like you want to look at this from the, from the perspective of the chairs, right? You can't solve the problem unless you have enough chairs, if you don't have enough chairs, then maybe it won't be the person with a broken leg. If you have like a more capable population, maybe it's somebody, the person who is a little bit out of shape, whatever. Right. But if you don't have enough chairs, somebody's going to be left out.
1: So just one final thing on that. And then I'm going to go to my final question for Ezra Um, in his conversation, as it relates to the number of chairs, it's a zoning issue. Los Angeles County 79% of the land in Los Angeles County is zoned for single family. That means you cannot build an apartment building to house more people. The city you talk about in your podcast that has brought down homelessness, 69% in the last decade is Houston, Texas. I'm in the real estate business. You talk to any of my clients, Houston is a great city to be a developer in. It's a terrible city to be an owner in because there's no zoning. If the density is needed, you can go put an apartment building right next door to an office building next to a residential home. It's unbelievable that the restriction on zoning in California is restricting supply and therefore driving the cost up and having people fall out the bottom. And you go to the other extreme in Houston, Texas, where there is no zoning, you can build anything anywhere and they've reduced their homelessness by 69% in the last decade. My final question for you that you give to everyone, I picked mine out of all the stuff that you've done. I just ask you one because you're reading so much and you're always thinking ahead. What's the book that you've either just read or about to read that has you most excited right now?
0: I mean, I I guess I shouldn't say Recoding America, right? Because we already said that. But if I were to have you buy one book out of this conversation, it'd be Recoding America. And if I were to have you get one book on AI, uh, because we talked about that for quite a bit, there's a great book that came out a couple of years ago by a guy named Brian Christian called The Alignment Problem. It's not just one of the best books about AI, I think the best book about AI, but it's an amazing book about the human mind and about how minds work. It's just beautifully done. He's an award-winning science journalist. So Recoding America and The Alignment Problem, if you read those two books, your view of the world will tilt a bit on its axis in a very good way. Ladies and gentlemen, Ezra Klein.